Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey everybody, it's your Hobbit Hole Wizard, Holden McNeely. Why wouldn't Gandalf be? Why would <laughs> one time the actual wizard, <laughs> n- n- the wizard? I'm your glowing bruiser, Holden McNeely, and I'm your just fussy Englishman who smokes tobacco all day and just sits in the bathtub thinking about goblins. Is that your description of Gandalf? No, I'm, that's fucking the 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 OG JRR. Oh, okay. You're not going to be Gandalf if I'm giving you the wizard and you don't want to be Gandalf? I always liked... All right, I get to be Gandalf. Okay, let's start I'm again. I'm Bilbo to a T, man. I just want to fucking stay in my goddamn little tree stump. All right, let's switch it then. Hello, it is I, your pipe-smoking wizard, Holden McNeely, a.k.a. Gandalf. And it's me, your second breakfast cramming, three-foot-tall bruiser, Jake. Uh, adventure is, you know, I, I yearn for it, but also I like naps. The greatest adventure is flies ahead. I'd, I'd have to go look up the lyrics. And we're not going to be talking about that movie, by the way. We're not going to be talking about uh, any of the movies, any any media surrounding it. This is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And I'm going to tell you this right now. We're barely going to talk about the, the actual <laughs> book series, The Lord of the Rings today. Today we are, in, in a lot of ways, we most, might get to two rings tops like some of those elf rings the bullshit ones <laughs> yeah we'll get to the bullshit rings but not like the good you know yeah the, good, know, the good rings We're saving those good rings for part two <laughs> um so anyways uh also this is actually a patreon sponsored episode this one goes out to alan harms who has an anniversary coming up with his Aww. lady and it is for his lady he says i just want to the episode shout out to be to my lovely wife, Bailey. I'm tempted to pimp her books because she's a self-published author on Amazon, but I think she may kill me for that. Okay, well, then I won't pimp her books, but I'll tell you what, this is probably going to be a two-parter, so if the books need to be pimped, books need to be pimped. But listen, There are literally dozens of people waiting to hear those book titles yearning to spend a normal amount of money to I'll, read them on their Kindles. I will say this. Uh, thank you for forcing this to happen because I've been trying to get uh, Jake to do one of these, uh, an episode on Lord of the Rings. I think since we started, it seems kind of like an obvious choice for a Wizard in the Bruiser episode. And Jake always balked. He went tush tosh when I would say something. No, I would go, fuck, please. No, I have a life. <laughs> I have a family. 
please, I can't get into the Silmarillion. I can't. Oh, we're talking about it. I can't do this. We're talking about it. We're uh, not even going to touch on the filking subculture. <laughs> <laughs> Ew, what? I don't. It's filking. It's oh, a right. key part of fantasy and fandom. Ladies and gentlemen, bear with us. This is going to be a lot, okay? And today, honestly, we're really going to be talking about the man himself, J.R. Tolkien, his life leading up to the books, and so many of the inspirations that led to the creation of the Lord of the Rings, and as well as talking about The Hobbit. Honestly, I think we're, we're going to end up talking more about the books themselves in the next episode. This is going to be a two-parter, at least. Um, who knows? It could, it could go on more. I don't know. I haven't gotten to the research. I mean, uh, I feel like we're, we're probably going to do a two-parter, and then once I sober up, we can do like the movies oh, as like yeah. a separate run. The movies could also be a two-parter. I mean, it's there's so much going on with the movies. I'd probably see, you know, this is my situation. And you'd let me know what your situation is. I was... Kind of itchy. I, um, well, yeah. Worried I mean, about my dick size. I'm always itchy. Never worried about that. <laughs> uh, for me personally, I was really anti-fantasy sci-fi when I was younger. Uh, especially when it came to reading. Uh, I was more of like a literature person. Um, a really a fancy lad. And a comic book reader and a you know cartoon humor reader. Um, but never, I, I always kind of balked. I don't know. I was like, it's all just made up flim flam or something like that. I don't know. I didn't understand the worth of it, uh, which is silly. And I realize that is silly. And my buddy Ben, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, not Ben Kissel. Uh, my buddy Ben... <laughs> What? It's like a trope. Yeah, my buddy Ben introducing me to a thing and yeah. screaming at me about it. Well, it's sit- like that and and uh, the caves outside of Osa- of exactly. Kyoto. Uh, which, by the way, there's a literal, actual like he definitely used shit around his house. <laughs> As a create- young boy, he was a transfer student he in did. Kyoto, Japan. There were two towers around his house. We'll get into it, but yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, he we he Tolkien actually did explore the areas around his house and and used it all for his books. Anyways, for me personally. Wasn't into it. Um, my buddy Ben, when I got home from college, he was like, I'm dragging you to the $1.50 movie theater. We're going to watch The fir- the Fellowship of the Rings, and I'm going to get you into this fucking series, goddammit. And I was like, all right, fine. We went. I did indeed enjoy the movie. Also, they had a Simpsons um, arcade game oh, cabinet, yep. and we totally beat it afterwards. And by the end of the beating of the game, we were surrounded by like little kids who were going on runs to get us quarters and stuff. It was kind of magical. Uh, I decided, you know what? I should. This is like an important thing. I should read it. It's you know, and this would be fun, and maybe I'll really love it, and it'll turn me on to fantasy. Well, I picked up Fellowship of the Rings, and I read it, of course, uh, posthumously after reading the uh, watch the first movie and then it's um, not what posthumously means but I, I, keep I going. thought maybe it was and then i realized how quickly 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 that it wasn't um also um and then i picked up two towers i read half of that and then i saw the movie in the middle of reading it and then finished it and then return of the king i actually finished the book before the final film came out and got to really celebrate that by watching the final movie and really fell in love with the series while in in this in uh the process of reading and watching all of it and it was such a joy to get to discover it as the films were coming out and there will definitely eventually be a uh a episode about the movies, but we will not be talking about the movies fucking whatsoever in this series, okay? Because there's so much shit to crawl through <laughs> to to describe this man, this gigantic uh, world that he created, that he built, that inspired, really, that really blew open the doors 
on fantasy in pop culture, fantasy being a part of everyday life and not just this super niche uh, interest. Um, and we'll see why. I think when we talk about, you know, he had this very famous lecture series on Beowulf and he his arguments in that is really, I think, in a big way, his thesis for creating Lord of the Rings in general. But it didn't happen. He didn't just sit down and conceive of this whole thing like some mastermind. This was a slow process, as we'll see with The Hobbit coming out being a children's story, a simpler story, um, and then also doing all this world building that was almost completely separate from The Hobbit that he realized, oh, no shit, I could combine all of this stuff and create this fantasy novel series. Over a decade of work went into it. It's the unbelievable. The idea that he wasn't just telling a story, he was building an entire mythology Something that like entire yes. cultures and Languages. societies build up over centuries. Languages, he was building religions, on his own. absolutely. And connecting it, he was a very religious man himself. And usually you don't find that a lot with like fantasy writers. I pers- mean, between him yeah. and C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, and, who, and they were friends. But this is an interesting concept because I think a lot of um, hyper-religious people are very anti, can be very anti-fantasy. Because in a way, you know, it balks at the idea of like a true, you know, faith in a true religion like oh you go worship your dragons and not our Jesus you know what I mean but he was able to really apply his religion to his work in a really beautiful understated way which is very nice to see Jake did you read the books um well okay this is really another big factor into why I was always hesitant to do these episodes also the Hobbit I can't remember when I read it but I read it I think um, years before in the the Lord of the Rings series. I saw the animated movie on TV when I was like a barely a babe. Oh yeah, that was my first experience and with the, the whole thing was the Hobbit movie, and I was obsessed with it. And I would rent it from Blockbuster like once a month, probably, and then watch it. Skeeved me out. The yes. animation style was so unique it and so scared me. It ugly. It was an yeah. ugly piece of work. Yeah. Even even the songs with the quivering, like yeah, it's creepy. Like everything about it was deeply unsettling. And when it was time to read The Hobbit and uh, Fellowship of the Ring. I couldn't get through it. It was like the prose was, especially Fellowship of the Ring. The story just kind of like I, I, it literally, I got trapped at like Tom Bombadil. I was, I checked out and never looked back until the movies came out. So I feel like a real pretender right here. A lot of times we'll talk about uh, something that is deeply close to my childhood, and you know I want to pick it apart and deconstruct it and like really feel what made this special. And I'm always, and now I'm just like. I don't know. There's, I don't know, man. I would like, I hope by the end of this whole thing, I will have inspired you, Jake, to pick up the book series and finally read it through it. I think it is important. Can it you is imagine work. the heartbreak in Marie's eyes when she finally sees me on a on a quiet Sunday afternoon actually reading a fucking real ass book and she comes over eyes full of hope for like her new enlightened fiance it's fucking the two towers <laughs> what do you mean that's it's a it's a fantastic work of uh, art it's fine <laughs> I will say too um this isn't necessarily like an easy to read book uh, by any means or book series um, in the sense like I, I think you know a, a fantasy series like Game of Thrones is like way more easy to pick up and dive into uh whereas lord of the rings not always super easy there's a lot of songs and poetry in there there's a lot of um the writing style at times can feel a little pretty archaic and you're trying to figure out exactly what's going on nothing is quite exactly handed to you also you watch the movies and 
they're jumping back and forth between you know Frodo's and and uh, Samwise and you know um, and Marion Pippin and then Marion Pippin's story and then you've got the 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 uh, Legolas and Aragorn and Gimli and doing their thing. You know what I mean? And Liv Tyler being like, I love this handsome man, but also death. I can feel it in the water. Uh uh, and, and and yo, how handsome a dude got to be so you accept mortality? And you read the books, and you're like, oh man, I'm like stuck with ha- these two characters for half the book. <laughs> like once they all split up, like Two Towers and Return of the King is split up in like giant sections. Like, oh, this is the part of the book that will cover the Aragorn Gimli Legolas stuff, and this is the part of the book that will cover Sam and Frodo. And like, you're just stuck with them until their story's done, and then they'll jump to the other people you know what i mean um there it doesn't it's not like game of thrones in in the sense where it jumps from character to character every single chapter you know which is very surprising to me but either way let us just begin this journey um the greatest of adventures with the very beginnings of the man the myth the legend j r r tolkien that Um, stands for yeah (laughs) really really tolkien do you know what tolkien really actually stands for uh I know one Rius. He Tolkien himself believes that uh, his surname derived from the German wor- word uh, Tolkun, which means foolhardy, which I thought was pretty nice. Um, and his full name was is John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. Uh, his family immigrated from Germany in the 18th century, um, and his, it was came from a family that made old clocks. Uh, made and sold clocks, rather, watches and pianos in London and Birmingham. Um, He was born in 1892 in what is now called the Free State Province. He was actually born in a province of South Africa. And his father was a bank manager. He had a younger brother born two years later. Uh, Around this time, there's the, the, uh, I guess, a famous story in which a large baboon spider bit him in his garden when he was a child. Now, the that this inspired anything. I've never heard of an animal known as the baboon spider. You've never heard of a baboon spider? That's insane. Yeah. You made that up. No. Go look it up. In my my head, it's the exact size of a bowling ball (laughs) and jumps. Yes. And it talks and it spins, weaves webs all. Yeah, it takes your soul and all that good stuff. Um, He ends up going to England with his brother and his mother for a long family visit. Because, of course, in those days, if you you take a trip to another continent, you're not there for like a week ever. You're going to be there for like half a year probably. You know what I mean? Before you end up heading back. Well, while away, tragically. I just think the boys would appreciate uh the, the, you know just for their health maybe a couple of months away from what were they baboon spiders <laughs> um tragically though jake this work it's sad okay so at, pretend i know that you cannot feel actual human emotions but pretend to be sad right now i can simulate them pretty great <laughs> you are very good at it thank all right? you if you you should hire this guy to do funerals he's amazing at being upset at funerals i'll cry <laughs> I'll I'll do that pat thing that you people seem to enjoy. Awkwardly hit on the aunt. He'll do it all. <laughs> hey, I will expertly hit on that. <laughs> so while um they're away, his father tragically dies of rheumatic fever in South Africa. Now, um after this happens, the mother who is now like he was the breadwinner. Like the mom stayed at home, took you know, raised the kids, took care of the home. So the mother is like, oh, I'm fucked. Definitely not going back to South Africa. Takes him and his brother to live in Birmingham. 
Birmingham with uh, her parents, and then they moved around that area quite a bit. Birmingham is a character in this story. Birmingham is going to influence J.R.R. Tolkien in massive, profound ways when it comes to all the different locations of his Middle Earth, and that is so important. So, um, But also his love of knowledge. And as I told Jake earlier, and I'll go ahead and spill the thesis right now, this is the story about an academic with a great, fantastic imagination who's able to pull from all of these different parts of mythology and religion and history and the current state of being as we talk about World War One and World War Two, He's able to pull from all of these things to create this incredible fantasy world that will go down in history as maybe one of the greatest fantasy worlds, um, if not the greatest of all time. So anyways, uh, he lives in Birmingham. He lo- <laughs> And this is where he li- literally, Jake, and I'm not fucking with you, Okay, because I know you're mad at me right now about this, but I'm not fucking with you. Is it another goddamn spider? He loved to explore the places <laughs> around his house. There weren't caves, but there was a mill and there was a secret. There was a forest mm-hmm. and there were some things he liked to explore that would become the basis for Lord of the Rings. Hey, I've been watching a lot of the Great British Bake Off. I understand it's a lovely countryside. <laughs> it's very you know, lush. I really do. If I went back to England, I would not go to London. I would maybe consider going to Birmingham and doing like a tour of like Tolkien's, you know, hometown. And then just meet all the drunk townies that are just sick and tired so sick of rolling fields and lush greenery and and I'll be walking around the streets going oh my god this dude this this liquor store is older than America. That's amazing. This wow. is quaint as shit. <laughs> Holy shit. That passed out drunk old man looks like a dragon. Yeah. I, that must have been the sort that inspired him to write it. Um, so he loved to explore around his house. One big uh, major uh, location that he absolutely adored was the Serhole Mill. It is a water mill on the River Coal that he lived by from the years, uh, ages of four to eight years old. Uh, and this was his basis for the mill in Hobbiton. Tolkien said it was kind. It was a kind of a lost paradise. There was an old mill that really did grind corn with two millers, a great big pond with swans on it, a sand pit, a wonderful dell with flowers, a few old-fashioned village houses, and further away, a stream with another mill. I always knew it would go, and it did. It is now part of the Shire Country Park, of course, named after the Shire from Tolkien's work, and is also the host site to the annual Tolkien Weekend to celebrate the man. Um, and that would be a fun thing, I think, to go check out with right. a bunch of other big old fucking nerds. You know they're going to be filking over there. <laughs> um, there's also a dell with flowers that he describes that was called Mosley Bog, formerly the dell, and that inspired the ancient forests of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And um, there's also the client Licky and Malvern Hills that were a big part um, that were uh, surrounding uh, in the surrounding area of Birmingham there were, again, big part of that beautiful, hill, rolling green Hobbiton that we know and love in, in our in our brains. And now, uh, much more vividly so, because Peter Jackson made it happen all over again in New Zealand. But we're not talking about the movies, okay? You fuckers, we're not talking about it. He also enjoyed his time at his Aunt Jane's farm, and that farm was called bag end so that is actually Blech. directly translated into the books um, so again just he clearly he describes this time living in Birmingham with his mother and brother and running around these beautiful areas he, he so fondly these were clearly some of the best years of his life before uh, awful horrible war bullshit went down and um, uh, 
uh, before more tragedy struck his his life, as as we're about to see. It's also um, there's a lot of resources available on YouTube, a lot of documentaries, a lot of interviews. And uh, friends of Tolkien actually uh, have letters from him where he remembers South Africa. Yeah. Oh, okay. And the kind of desolate, dry ah. expanses of it, the empty space. And that would go on to the Dead Marshes, probably, and stuff like that, right? Or, or like uh, Mount Doom. Well, just that, like, it's not that he it's he could appreciate, uh, you know, this this kind of West Midlands world because even though it was like. It was cozy and quaint and kind of like pristine. It was still inhabited and lush and alive. And like it's it's if I feel like that level of preach of appreciation wouldn't have existed if he hadn't known both worlds. Right. Right. That like with fresh like even though he was just a kid when he came over, it was still fresh eyes that like the beauty of what he was beholding was like truer than just being like, yeah, that's the old mill and that's the fucking park and that's my aunt's farm or whatever. Like it's right. it's it's a little bit subtle, but I really think it was a factor in kind of how he brought uh, the Shire to life and how much love he put into that uh, kind of home base, this kind of almost utopian, cozy home. Yes, and it was in that utopian, cozy home in which his mother homeschooled him and taught him a lot about many different things. A few of those things would be botany. Um, and the 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 uh, love for nature and a love for farming and a love for gardening and he would love to draw landscapes and trees based on the teachings of this this love of nature um, and his love of nature would also lead him to um, some other artists that would really bring out a lot of his inspiration for the books he loved also though learning about languages and his mother taught him the basics of Latin very very young he could read by the age of four and was writing not too long after that and he loved reading books about Native Americans, um, and he loved the fantasy of a man named George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, and Christian minister, and I think this is another important element to add to the equation, that he was this, um, he was a fantasy writer that wrote... Uh, that had a religious base, and um, he actually ended up, uh, this would be Lewis Carroll's mentor, um, and he, his best known works are Fantastes, uh, Fantastes, oh. P-H-N-A-N. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know this guy? Uh, just, it's, it's a, it's kind of noted as one of like the pre-Tolkien yes. giants of yes. fantasy literature. The princess and the goblin, mm-hmm. and the princess and the goblin have a big influence on his own goblins in his work. Uh, also at the back of The North Wind and a book called Lilith. Um, those are just a few of his most well-known ones. What about she? <clears throat> Did you get into she? I did not get into she. Oh, because uh, like, there was also all these like uh, uh, kind of explorer, adventurer kind of deals. And she was a fantasy book about like this this uh, kind of mysterious land in Africa that was ruled by like a near mystical queen Ooh. with rock and yabos. All right. I only knew it as that Green Day song. She, she's Oh my God. It's like, it's like I'm really there. <laughs> George MacDonald had this to say about his work. I write not for children, but for the childlike, whether they be a five or 50 or 75. I love that quote. And that is so what makes a great fantasy novelist. And so what is going to put Hobbit on the map is, this great work that is uh, uh, for kids, but super enjoyable by adults. Technically, as well. what's going to put the Hobbit on the map is all the fucking maps Gerald Tolkien <laughs> yes. drew by hand. We will definitely get into that as well. He was also a fan of the fairy books, 
by Andrew Lang, um, and that that would make a lot of sense. Definitely a fan of fairies in general and mythology. Um, another book he became quite interested in was a historical novel by S.R. Crockett titled The Black Douglas, which is about William the Earl of Douglas's struggle to keep his lands facing many enemies, including one that would become the basis for Sauron, named, uh, I know I'm going to say this wrong, uh, Gilderay? Gilderay, I believe is his name, is very is French. Mm-hmm. Gilderay was a knight that was a leader in the French army and a companion to Joan the Ark. He was also an occultist who later confessed to being a serial killer of children who at one point attempted to summon a demon. And he, my friend, is the basis for Sauron. That kind of, ooh, that actually kind of makes a lot of sense because part of his like weird love of mythology is this sense of loss about Specifically, like Anglo mythology, mm, mm-hmm. whereas uh, you know you can trace things like uh, the Arthurian legends and yes. uh, surviving texts like and, Beowulf. And the Arthurian legend and Beowulf are two things I'm about to definitely talk about. But when the Norman conquest of England came in, it kind of just paved over just entire you know eons of folk tales and fairy tales and uh, just this entire mythology. And so you can trace a lot of just what counts as modern or, yeah, what counted at the time as English folklore to, like, French folklore and Scandinavian folklore and Germanic folklore. And it was this weird sense of national pride, maybe because, you know, he it's his adopted country in a way, hmm. that um he wanted to make a, a mythology that was quintessentially English. Not even British. English. Right. Like, not Welsh, not Scottish. Right. Like, English. Yeah, totally. Um, well, here's another English as fuck thing to fuck your bullshit up, Jay. Oh, uh, just just put it in a crumpet and let me chunk it down. Let's hear those crocodile tears. Tolkien's mother died of acute diabetes when he was just twelve years old. Hmm. Good that was good. I like that. That was a good sad it wasn't too much, but it showed that you have feelings that and you're not just some robot person that I made in a lab, which is the truth that I made you. Tolkien wrote about his mother with this. My own dear mother was a martyr indeed, and it is not to everybody that God grants so easy a way to his great gifts as he did to Hillary and myself, giving us a mother who killed herself with labor and trouble to ensure us keeping the faith. Another important thing that um, I think I have here, but I must have skipped somehow, she uh, ended up switching to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and that was a big deal. And it was to, to great, great um, uh, uh, argument coming from her uh, relatives, her Protestant, I believe, relatives. Um, very, very upset about this. And it was kind of, a, uh, I think, telling about how strong his mother was that in her resolve and uh, not, not only her going above and beyond to teach... Uh, Tolkien and his brother to 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 raise them right and and really to give them like an unbelievable childhood education, which obviously that's probably why she taught him Latin. Yes, and homeschooled him. Yes, and homeschooled him. It was it was a big big deal and a big part of his upbringing and religion in general and the Roman Catholic religion, of course, huge part of his upbringing and his work. So now he's going to go be raised by his mother's close friend, Father Francis Xavier Morgan. Um, Of this, Tolkien had to say, he was an upper-class Welsh Spaniard Tory and seemed to some... (laughs) What? That's a hell of a cocktail. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) And seemed to some just a pottering old gossip. 
He was, and he was not. I first learned charity and forgiveness from him, and in the light of it, pierced even the liberal darkness out of which I came, knowing more <laughs> about Bloody Mary than the mother of Jesus, who was never mentioned except as an object of wicked worship by the Romanists. Very interesting. So he ends up getting a scholarship to King Edward School in Birmingham. This is an independent day school for boys. Uh, he ends up being one of the cadets for the school's officers training corps and was posted just outside the gates of Buckingham Palace, actually, during that time. While living in the Edgebaston area of Birmingham, Tolkien lived right by two different tall buildings. Isn't that interesting, Jake? Two tall buildings. Two of them. Dos. Duce. Ah. That's right. Two spires. Two very tall, I want to say towerish buildings. There was Perrault's Folly, this which is a tower that stands 96 feet high and was built in 1758 by a man named John Perrault, and Edgebaston Waterworks' Chimney, which was also a very tall tower built in um I think I want to say 1870. Um I believe, and it is. Uh, this is said to be, though unproven, the influence for the two towers. And if you look at pictures of them, you can really see it. They are towers. They are very thin, very tall towers, and they look scary, and evil people probably live in them. Uh, another influence during this time, and this is where we're going to get into what I was talking about, the artists who were more connected with nature. There's a man, there, there's a movement called the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Oh, Wow. You know of these people. I mean, just a half-forgotten lecture in art history class back when I was in college. So funny. So these people were kind of going against the grain. They were like, no, we want to go back to the artists that existed before Raphael um, and his revolution on art that he kind of created himself. Um, they they really wanted a, a deep attention to detail with a focus on nature. And I think this is going to have a profound effect on his art, uh, Tolkien, I mean, uh, on his work, um, the way he describes things the detail, right? Um, so there's a man named Edward Byrne Jones. Uh, one of his paintings is called The Beguiling of Merlin. You may have seen it. Um, it's pretty famous. Uh, it is from the Arthurian legend, as we were just talking about Arthur, uh, legends of the, the round table, King Arthur, in which he is trapped in a hawthorn bush due to his infatuation with the Lady of the Lake at, um, and also a Nimue stands over him. Nimue is the name of the, the woman, she stands over him reading from a book of spells. It is a very elaborate work. It's very beautiful. It's very lush. It's very in nature and just absolutely gorgeous. But it's not just that it's gorgeous. It's incredibly detailed. Mm. And this is um, a lot of things that uh, the reaction to these, by the way, by people who didn't like it, it's just like, it looks ugly. It's too detailed. It doesn't look good um, uh, to the eye. But um, of course, this movement really responded to that, really liked that. And Tolkien really liked that. Um, other uh, many of uh, Edward Byrne Jones's pre-Raphaelite paintings were sold to the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, which now hosts the largest collection of Byrne Jones pieces in the world. All along with Byrne Jones was William uh, Morris a fellow pre-Raphaelite, or also it's known as the Arts and Crafts Movement. Um, 
which was also, by the way, not only a love of nature and detail, very anti-industrialist, which I think definitely plays a huge part in the work uh, that you read in Skip Lord of the, the Rings. Skip the paintings. When does he get into the fucking muck? He's gonna he's gonna murder people soon. Okay. <laughs> um, like now, I'm sure they're great paintings, but like, when does he snap next? He's gonna he's gonna tell people to snap next. I don't think he snapped him himself. He just tells other men to do it. He casts fireball into a fucking German oh, trench. All right, can we please not insult World War One by making it a wizard? Have spell? you read the history? It's the dumbest war. <laughs> it is the dumbest war. Like um, tragically so, but yeah. Lord, it's dumb. But Lord, it's dumb. Um, who? Yeah, it's one of. The, it's like a. It's like a. Um, an actual like. Um, comedy play from back in the day. What am I thinking of? It's a farce. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a bunch of little things just happen to go wrong and nobody's communicating in just the right way for everything to just go fucking bananas. And then a rat eats your foot off. Exactly. And then a rat eats your foot off. Um, so, uh, William Morris, he's a craftsman, poet, and activist. His later work apparently was to be the first set entirely in a fantasy world. So if you want to go, go find the one, the, the, the one man who did it first, this is the guy who apparently wrote things that were completely outs- just outside of actual well, it's anything actually, real off the earth completely. That's actually a huge distinction between like yes. the kind of Tolkien era of high fantasy, epic fantasy, whatever, and kind of the 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 pre-fantasy that uh that kind of existed before it. Obvious exceptions, but you know, in terms of popular trends, uh the idea that, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, she kind of like naps and then follows a rabbit or in the Wizard of Oz, yes. she like wakes up in another thing. Or even in C. S. Lewis, the the you know, that there's like normal world and then you cross then into you cross a over world. into to fantasy world and fantasy world that then the rules are different. But, you know, Tolkien and other books like it, uh uh, you know, just cut to the chase. Like, okay, just accept okay, this is the world. There's magic. There's there's goblins. It's fine. Yes, exactly. There's big talking eagles that can solve all your problems. Exactly. But they don't because they're fucking full of themselves. <laughs> um, there were two novels that particularly inspired him the most. And that is The House of the Wolflings and The Roots of the Mountains, which incorporated an archaic language as well as lots of poetry. Tolkien said, The dead marshes and the approaches to the Moranon owe something to northern France after the Battle of Somme, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Ooh, that's a bad they one. owe more to William Morris and his Huns and Romans, as in The House of the Wolflings or The Roots of the Mountains. Um, actually, the names Gandalf and Silverfax both appear in The Well at World's End, another work by this man, William Morris. Yeah, so big, big time influence, big time influence. Um, while he was young and around this time he was living with the father... Francis Xavier Morgan. That sassy Spaniard. He had two cousins named Mary and Marjorie, and they invented a language, which he grew fascinated with, um, called Animalic, which led to one he invented with Mary called Nevbosh, which was even more complex. And then after that, he was so nerdy about it that they were like, um, we need to stop hanging out with this kid and like start like making out with boys or whatever we do that's like awesome or whatever and get like stickers. And I don't know what they do, right? <laughs> Um, and after that, he alone went on to create a language called Neferon. So at a very early, very early age, very into creating languages. This is such an imp- another important part. As you can see, all of these things I'm describing, they're all going into the bowl. Yeah. They're all being thrown into the bowl and swirled around to make this like epic thing that you can never fully almost get a grasp of because it's so sprawling and complete and created by this one guy. 
you know and that's the most shocking part is that all of this is from one guy is it or is in in learning about all these little details and little quirks of character that contributed to this world oh yeah when you say that we all contain a world within us there you go we just have to like we just have to open up to all of the influences I mean we just recently did an episode on Avatar and their process was very similar albeit it was two guys but they had the same thing where they're like let's I love this I'm gonna pull from this I'm gonna pull from this anime I'm gonna pull from this on the west side I'm gonna pull from this from the east side this is what Tolkien's doing he's doing this with mythology, with invented language, with um, with uh, these artists, uh, these nature-based artists, with all of these things, with Arthurian legend. He and and this is really going to kick into the highest gear when he becomes a full-on academic, which he's about to do. So he ends up forming a secret group with three friends called the Tea Club and Barovian Society, or TCBS. Um, and uh, uh, Barovian is the Barrow dialect of England. I guess it was just their specific kind of dialect that they had. They held a council in 1914, which gave Tolkien the resolve to dedicate more of his time to writing poetry. This is when he becomes way more into written verse. Another thing that is so huge in his work in Lord of the Rings. In 1911, Tolkien goes on a summer holiday to, uh, to Switzerland, in which he and 11 others hiked through the Swiss Alps. Mm. This is obviously, and you see the different places he went through. This is so clearly the Misty Mountains and Bilbo's journey in The Hobbit. He lived it. I love that about this tale. I love that about this history of him. He totally did it with his, you know, dwarves, you know, <laughs> like, which is amazing. Um, he ends up after that studying at Exeter College in Oxford. Just imagine all those friends that went with him picking up the book years later being like, oh man, I'm glowing. <laughs> shit oh it does he fart too much Tolkien <laughs> they all get mad at him I don't think Loeing farts a bunch in the first one but who knows in Hobbit but who knows hello it's me your wondrous wizard Jake and if you told me that our longest running sponsor would be a company that helps men with thinning hair I'd say well that's upsettingly on the nose because I've talked about this before throughout my 20s I agonized over my male pattern baldness and suffered through all the hoops and expenses it used to take to get effective treatment for it but all that has changed when keeps came onto the scene if you're worried about your own follicle situation, the last thing you should do is procrastinate or be paralyzed with anxiety. The fact is, there are effective treatments out there that work, are approved safe by the FDA, and thanks to Keeps, you can get them cheaper and more conveniently than you ever imagined. The process can't be simpler. All you have to do is go online and answer a few questions and take a couple of photos. This works on PC, mobile, Mac, basically anything that can run a web browser. Then a real licensed doctor will go over your case and send you a personal treatment plan. Once you're signed up, you'll get the right amount of medication as you need it, all without the expensive trip to the pharmacy. No waiting rooms, no paperwork. It's that simple. You don't even have to leave your couch. These are the generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss treatments out there, and they work best the earlier you start. So if this is something that's keeping you up at night, there's no better time to do something about it. Hey, you know what? If that's not enough, I don't know if you're aware of this, Keeps has been making a special offer for our listeners of this podcast, and you should take advantage of it. All you have to do is go to keeps.com slash wizard, and you can get your first month of treatment for free when you sign up. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash wizard, and get your first month of treatment for free. Keeps. Hair today. Hair tomorrow. 
He ends up studying at Exeter College um, in Oxford, graduating with first-class honors in 1915 in English language and literature. And at 16, he meets his future wife in Edith Mary Bratt. However, his guardian, Father Morgan, forbade him from speaking with her until he turned 21 so he could focus on his schoolwork. Um, And also, it didn't hurt that, uh, or it didn't help that she was a Protestant. Mm. So he ends up obeying this, and he ends up not speaking to her for years to the point where she had accepted an engagement from another guy. The day he turns 21, he writes her a letter and they meet up, and he, uh, she goes home and breaks off her engagement uh, with this other guy. Yeah. Um, Pretty, pretty crazy. Also, so, um, you're telling me your invented language was Neferin? <laughs> Neferin? <laughs> yeah, I feel like she maybe didn't ask enough questions about what he does in his spare time, but whatever. What are you going to do? Um, that's like Lexi finding out how much I play video games in reality. Uh, I want to say six months into our relationship. Girl, I know it's been a while, and I know I haven't always been there for you, but let me just say, Sure, for not not ship off. Uh yeah, you can touch my boobs. Fuck yeah. <laughs> so this is when the old war starts a happening. This is when that, <laughs> when that shit ass war fucking becomes a big part of things. But also, I mean, honestly, if it, it ha- the war had to happen for Tolkien to have any like these elaborate battles that happen in the books. I mean, they wouldn't exist without World War One, especially. A lot of people give more credit to World War Two as an influence than Tolkien would like to admit. Tolkien constantly would constantly end up refuting how much World War Two would have to do with things, and in fact, feels that World War One was more the war that influenced his work um, when it came to writing Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, anyways, yeah. So that was actually a misconception I had. I always thought it was a World War Two thing. He definitely had a part to play in World War Two. The funny thing is, we're not even going to get to that today. Uh, we're going to talk about his time in World War One uh, and leading up to him becoming an academic and then writing The Hobbit. The, uh, the I believe the quote in an interview, a BBC interview I watched, was like, uh, "People don't people confuse uh, application and analogy." Like, mm, uh-huh. okay, yes, you uh-huh. recognize that World War Two has this large evil force and a coalition of good, right. but like. You applied that to Lord of the Rings. You right. didn't like. I didn't write that as an analogy. Right. Right. Very interesting. Um, so Tolkien volunteers for the British Army when the United Kingdom enters the First World War in 1914. Tolkien says, "In those days, chaps joined up or were scorned publicly. It was a nasty cleft to be in for oh, a young it was, man." There was literally um, like roving bands of young women that would like find young men, unenlisted men in the streets and like mark them with a yellow feather as a yeah. coward. Yeah, it was a big, big, big deal. Um, he said, "Yeah, it was a nasty cleft to be in, in for a young man with too much imagination and little physical courage." He ends up entering a program in which he could first finish his degree, and even that gave him a lot of shit from his family and friends. Even just him entering a program where he could finish his studies first got him un- like an unbelievable amount of bullshit from the, people the around. The romanticization him. of of England in World War One, like before it actually like devolved into the living hell on earth that it truly became right is like legendary it mm-hmm. is like one of the most naive bungles in the history of like national uh i guess uh deployment is yeah. how much england's military was like come on boyos see adventure like everything's gonna be grand right, like have right. a pip pip time at the old cut to three years later like people just 
cutting their own hands off so they can just leave. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, when you read about World War One, I, I mean, I didn't even get into it that much for this research. Oh, but and England didn't even get the worst of it. Like France yo, was just yeah. fucking. Just the trench. Just the whole idea that like World War One was you sat in a wet trench for un- hours on end and then every now and again you would just be forced to charge across the field get completely murdered and then go back to your shitty trench and then like a month later you fell back and like all that progress was yeah. just for nothing just a it just sounds brutal the way it just seems like world war one it was like the technology and the strategy just all hit at a certain angle to make it the most both boring and violent and awful kind of culmination of garbage in terms of like actual warfare for soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, uh, it just sounds And awful. there were no elves around to do cool there shit. There were no elves around to do cool shit. In July of 1915, he was commissioned as a temporary second lieutenant in the Lancashire uh, Fusiliers, which is a line infantry regiment of the British Army, training for 11 months with the 13th Battalion. Duggan said, gentlemen are rare among the superiors, and even human beings rare indeed. He did not like his time in the army. He was summoned to a posting in France in June of 1916, Tolkien said, junior officers were being killed off a dozen a minute. Parting from my wife then, it was like a death. They they had a horrible, like just this super sad going away kind of night in a hotel before he left. And then he takes an overnight voyage via boat to a French port town called Calais, where he would await his unit summoning at the base depot of Etapoles, a French fishing and leisure port. And during this time, he wrote a very important poem, which was called The Lonely Isle, while waiting to be summoned to the front lines about that voyage to Calais. And I shall read it to you, Jake, and I want you to look at me while I read it, okay? I promise not to make any slide whistle noises. For me forever, they forbidden marge appears, a gleam of white rock over sundering seas. And thou art crowned in glory through a mist of tears, thy shores all full of music and thy lands of ease. Old haunts of many children robed in flowers until the sun paced down his arch of hours. When in the silence, fairies with a wistful heart dance to soft airs, their harps and viols, Weave. Hmm. <laughs> that was the same you gave when I said that his mother died. Huh. <laughs> the lands of ease. That's actually that kind of that's that's that hits. That yeah. makes a lot of sense considering the the kind of dichotomy between the Shire and the horrors of Mordor. Another little language thing. He invented a code with his letters to Edith that uh, could get information that because they would censor the letters Mm -hmm. coming out from the soldiers. So he'd be able to give her using this like code of dots, give her information about where he was, um, how uh, like what his state of being was, all these things that they would edit out of the letters um, getting passed. Huh. Yeah, which How is bad. Are you at censoring letters that you don't see a dot pattern? <laughs> I wonder if this is a code. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? I don't know what it looked like. Maybe it was ingrained in a certain way in the he letters. He hand filled in a QR code, and Miss yeah. <laughs> Brat had to uh, get her cell it. phone out. Yeah. She scanned it with by holding a frog up to it, and it would like <laughs> look at it and freak out. Uh, he ended up commanding enlisted men, mainly working class men from Lancashire, who he grew very in a big affinity for, but was never really able to have a friendship with because he was their commander. He said the most improper job of any man is bossing other men no not one in a million is fit for it and least of all those who seek the opportunity i love that phrase about leading men not one in a million is fit for it for
for leading men, and least of all those who seek the opportunity are the least. Those who try, who yeah. uh, uh, make it a point to try to lead men, are the least qualified. I love that. It's always the thing with like, who would want to be pre- only a psycho would want to be president. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, he was part of the assaults on two German defensive strong points, uh, Schwe- the Schweben Redoubt and the Leipzig Salient. These were big battles. He, uh, While attacking Regina Trench, though, Tolkien comes down with trench fever. Trench fever is this disease trans- transmitted by body lice. These trenches were filled with lice that you were trying to sleep in at night. It was a nightmare. Um, C.S. Lewis would also suffer from this. And it involved a five-day fever inducing soreness of muscles and a severe headache leading to a month-long recovery period. During this time, he was sent back to England in November of 1916 where he learned that many of his school friends were killed in the war. Especially during the Battle of Somme, a big attack on the Germans that also led to his battalion being almost completely decimated, which he too most likely would have been killed during if he had not been sent home. Um, so just, you know, this this whole experience gives him, uh, and I quote, a deep sympathy and feeling for the Tommy. Tommy was referred to as like a common soldier, especially the plain soldier from the agricultural counties. And this is, again, a centerpiece for his Bilbo. For his hobbit, these good men that were farmers that were pulled away into this crazy battle and have to sacrifice everything and a lot of times get killed to to try to for the greater good. Wearing those real silly looking flat hats, you know, the ones I'm talking yes. about, like with that don't come down to the yes. ears. Yes, that don't come down to the ears. Real silly looking hats. You know, these men died, Jake. You know what? I originally started The Germans with... had the dumber ones with the pointy spikes. All right. We all know the Germans had the dumber. At least they could kill somebody with their hat. <laughs> Try killing somebody with the other hat. You could like throw like a Frisbee maybe. <laughs> I wonder how many people got killed by those German hats. I don't want to think about it. All right. What do you want to think about? Anything else. <laughs> Maybe wizards. <laughs> what about like slicing your penis open with like a, a little razor? You probably wouldn't want to think about that more than I don't people. Want to think about that. Right? No one wants to think, think about the worst that. Thing you could Getting think like of? a paper cut on your eyeball? Uh, no, no, in the uh, skin between your fingers. Ooh, yeah, that's always oh, the worst. Don't want to think about don't that. Think about that. I'd rather think about those helmets killing people. <laughs> um, but, Point made. All right. Point made. <laughs> Tolkien says this quote in defense of why World War One was the f- greater influence on his work. He says, by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead because of this war. And he's like, and you think I'm using World War II? Like, my life was fucked up by this point. Like, I, you know, well before the Second World War. Um, Now, Tolkien is now medically unfit for general service and played out the rest of the war in hospitals and with garrison duties. Sneaking away from that thing, man, he easily could have died. And um, now he's going to end up, uh, during this time, beginning a new project that is entitled The Book of Lost Tales. You may have heard of it because it was published, a version of it was published years and years later by his son. Um, it was an attempt to create a mythology for England, like a new one, which he would end up completely abandoning. It had different elf races, but they weren't the same as Lord of the Rings. He, they had little differences. They, he would end up reusing a lot of names and general concepts that he created for the Lost Worlds. Lost Worlds is definitely a really good thing to pick up if you're obsessed with the work of Tolkien and you really want to get deep down into the into the process you know is this is this book is going to be like his failed attempt at what would later be the Cimmerillion and you know the whole thing you know I think about I think about Christopher Tolkien his son like all the time like what a weird 
Like the dude, I think he's still alive. He's like in his nineties, yeah. And his like entire professional life has it's just been, been about his father's work. Yeah. yeah. Well, when your when your father's work is that massive, that's like if your dad's fucking Mozart. You know what I mean? You're probably gonna be like Mozart never fucked. Mozart definitely never fucked. You're right. He was too busy going. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can't. What are we even talking about right now? Okay. Um. But uh. As I, I digress. Um. The, uh. In this. In the frame story of the Book of Lost Tales, it's about a mortal man who visits the Elvish Isle of Tol Eresi, uh, which is referred to as the Lonely Isle, in the inscription of Book One, where he learns of its history. And the first story is called the Fall of Gondolin. Um. And it's the tale of the founding of the Elven city of Gondolin. The betrayal of the city to the evil Morgoth by the city's creator, Turgon's nephew, Maeglin, and its eventual destruction. Can you repeat that, what I just said? Uh, Maeglin begat Morgoth, <laughs> begat G- Gondolas. Yeah. Yes, all of that. That's exactly it. And this isn't the Silmarillion. This is an entirely, I mean, very this similar is separate. in like tone. And you can pick it up. You can get this book, the Lost, uh, the Book of Lost. I think, I believe it was abandoned, therefore unfinished. He started writing it actually, apparently, in an army barracks in 1917 on the back of a sheet of military marching music. How crazy is that? And I hope they, I doubt they do, but if they have that somewhere, that would be an awesome. Oh, there's like tons and tons of Tolkien archives. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. They have like the entire manuscript for Lord of the Rings in a museum I know that um, which is pretty amazing and it is of course the first traceable story of his Middle Earth legendarium and echoes his personal experience of battle um, as well so now he's going to become this amazing academic. His first job was as the historian and etymologist of words of Germanic origin, beginning with the letter W for the Oxford English Dictionary. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. I love how specific that is. Historian etymologist of words of Germanic origin, beginning with the letter W. That is how specific his job well, that's like was. Well, uh, that's like the thing that everyone points out about English is that it is like influenced by all these different languages and like... The fan, like the word, like beef, the word beef is French because it's like processed and refined and from like the fancy people. While the word for like a cow, cow is Germanic because the people that actually had to kill the cow to make the beef ah, were from Germanic people. Interesting. It's like, yeah, it's there's, there's, there's you know, oh, sure. And there's this work is, to be done. And this is the kind of stuff that he loved digging into. He becomes the youngest professor at the University of Leeds following, uh, focusing on the English language. And during this time, he produces a middle English vocabulary, which is uh, the English language from the years 1150 to 1470, just focusing on language during that time um, uh, when it comes to English and a definitive edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Now, this oh. is one of the best-known Arthurian stories in which a roundtable knight named Sir Gawain accepts a challenge from a large Green Knight to strike him with the yes to strike the Green Knight with the axe. Um, uh, as long as the Green Knight can one day return the favor, exactly a year and a day after it happens. So, uh, Gawain. I'm sorry. Was it Gawain? I'm, I know I'm saying this wrong. So just know I'm saying this wrong. Gawain decapitates the Green Knight with his with his strike, and the Green Knight picks up his head uh, and reminds him of the day and time of the <laughs> next meeting. I love that. I really want to go and, and check this out. Actually, it's like Yule Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he uh, and then it and it's the tale of essentially Gawain like between the time next meeting of the night and and sort of doing all these things to kind of build himself up and 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 be able to take on the night when he next sees him. Um, he returns to Oxford as a professor with a fellowship at Pembroke College. He also privately tutors undergraduate, most 
most undergraduates, mostly at two women's colleges that were in dire need of good teachers. And this is when he undertakes a translation of Beowulf, which he finishes in 1926 and never publishes until his son edited it and put it out in 2014. And this is when he also gives the highly acclaimed lecture centered around uh, Beowulf called Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. And he was actually, and it was kind of interesting, I was trying to explain this to Lexi because it seems like weird that was even treated like this, but apparently Beowulf was treated merely as a historical document that the critics would bog down with um, being just this very much just about um, uh, telling of the history of the time period and things and like that. And not a radical story about a cool dude who refused to die and yes. could shot monsters Yeah, up. instead of an, a work of art, a poem in which the monsters commonly downplayed at that time should be looked at as key elements to the narrative. But Tolkien would say Beowulf, where McGrendel heads at where McGrendel lords tell uh, Tolkien would even go on to say Beowulf is among my most valued sources and especially the dr- intelligent dragon that would um, be in it's the same thing the guy the the thief in the story who awakens the dragon he steals a cup and um, takes it away, um, and that awakens the dragon, and the dragon leaves his fortress. He's guarding a treasure that was left behind by some nobleman who um, just left the dragon to guard it. And um, uh, yeah, oh, weird. Yeah, it's the I, same you know what I, thing. Like it's I was in as high the school, Hobbit, as Smog and the Hobbit. I was in high school, obviously, when we uh, uh, you know learned about. Ba- when I we feel like we Beowulf. we focus more on the Grindel and less on the dragon. Maybe that's why. Because that's like because it's the it's the dragon first or third no last dragon the dragon the dragon's last that's the the dragon's dragon's what what, gets him yeah what gets him so so by the way if you don't know beowulf it is this uh it's a uh, written by an anonymous person it is this epic spoken poem it's essentially this this giant tale that is told about this uh warrior named beowulf who ends up protecting this town against this evil monster grindle and then after that grindle's mother would go on to attack the town he killed that's like young beowulf and he kills grindle's mother and then the second part of the story is is Beowulf as an uh, an adult? It's like Batman uh, Return, Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, it's hero's uh, journey before hero's journey. And this thief uh, steals a cup from a smart dragon. Uh, smog, smog. It's pretty much smog. And um, the dragon leaves his. Uh, it could be Tiamat. You don't know. You don't know. There's he, lots of dragons hoarding shit. He leaves to attack the town, and Beowulf sacrifices himself to destroy the dragon. Um, but either way, um, it it it's it just sounds like this lecture was awesome. I wish I maybe there is. I didn't dig for it. Maybe there's a recording of it, but it just sounds amazing. Poet W.H. Auden would say of this, of, of his experience receiving this lecture because he went to the college. I don't think that I've ever told you what an unforgettable experience was for me as an undergraduate. This is a letter he wrote to Tolkien. Hearing you recite Beowulf, the voice was the voice of Gandalf, uh, which I love. Also, biographer Humphrey Carpenter had this to say about the lecture. He would come silently into the room, fix the audience with his gaze, and suddenly begin to declaim in a resounding voice the opening lines of the poem in the original Anglo-Saxon, commencing with a great cry of, "Hoyt!" The first word of this and several other uh, old English poems, which some undergraduates took to be quiet, 
Mm-hmm. It was not so much a recitation as a dramatic performance, an impersonation of an Anglo-Saxon bard in a mead hall and it impressed generations of students because it brought home to them that Beowulf was not just a set text to be read for the purposes of examination, but a powerful piece of dramatic poetry. Beowulf is so, such obviously the the inspiration, the biggest inspiration for his creation of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And it is the same argument, right? It is like Fantasy doesn't just have to be bullshitty, you know, dragons and knights and cheap, you know? Mm-hmm. It can be this really meaningful work that is that is more than that, you know? And that's what Tolkien really did for fantasy to bring it to the forefront. Um, so, as legend has it, one day in the early 1930s, Tolkien is grading examination papers and notices that a student left a page blank. On that page, with a spark of creativity, he writes, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Don't know where it came from, just happened. Kind of has a Lewis Carroll kind of just like fanciful, mm-hmm. like fake language mm-hmm. jabberwocky kind of tone to it. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the world is unnamed. It's referred to as an ancient time between the age of fairy and the dominant dominion of men. Uh, and he found that he could base this in the same world he had been working on with his legendarium, which would later be published as the Cimmerillion. This was okay. all kind of almost after the fact. Like he wrote The Hobbit and then he was like, wait, I can take all this unsellable shit <laughs> and incorporate it into this super sellable shit and put it all together and make it something that I really believe in um there are all these other influences and we're gonna we're gonna jump we're gonna bash through them right now with a shovel okay it's uh mixed in with um norse mythology was a big one that's eddas yes the eddas the poetic edda and the prose edda which are a collection of mythology as well as ruminations on norse poetic language itself especially names like owen and glowin and dwelin and balin and thorin these are all derived from this work and then they're kind of mixed together with um, Snow White from the Brothers Grimm and, and different fairy tales of that nature that are sort of all combined. Like he's just taking from what he wants, you know. Um, dwarves are Jews. <laughs> so um, being uh, d- uh, dispossessed of their ancient homeland at the Lonely Mountain and living among other groups whilst retaining their own culture, um, c- clearly derived from medieval the medieval image of Jews. Uh, Hobbits themselves are inspired by E.A. White Smith's novel, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. It's like old, it's like medieval snorks. <laughs> oh, great. I hate it. The Marvelous Land of Snurgs. It's set on a fictional magic magical island on Earth and centers around a race of short, thick-set, helpful people called snurgs. Um, smurfs? And, no, snurgs. Smurfs. No, the racist... Smurfs, Snurgs. <laughs> he would read it to his children, and in a letter to Sinclair Lewis, uh, uh, he wrote that it was probably an unconscious source book for The Hobbit. Speaking of Sinclair Lewis, uh, he had written a novel called Babbit, which apparently was very inspirational for the actual name Hobbit, and Lewis's main character uh, also enjoys a quiet home life. Was this before or after he started joining up with the Inklings? Oh, I think it's before. Okay. Well, he's friends with C.S. Because I was about to say, by 1932, Tolkien had finished a manuscript and passed it to some friends, including C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was also a member of the Inklings, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to do, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Well, it's. I think it's just kind of important that we stress that Oxford is this yes. 
ancient magical stone city built out of knowledge. Yes. And like if Hogwarts and a medieval castle and like an ancient Atlantis had a baby, it would be this fucking insane uh, just storied place where all these, all, you know, basically the brightest of the brightest, the most passionate uh, driven people in the worlds of writing and history and all this stuff got to just kind of hang out and mingle and like have a pint together and bounce ideas off each other. Yeah. And so many classic fantasy authors came from Oxford so much so that the Inklings was a specific club where they would come and test out their manuscripts. But I don't know if that was formalized until like, who knows? Yeah, who knows? But definitely he's got buddies Mm -hmm. and they're all trading things and advising each other. And definitely. And, and this is how he gets it published. He also gives, what do you call those monsters? Bingle borps. Can I use that? Are you still using bingle borps? I called them snurks. (laughs) They're from snurling. Oh no, that's good. That's good. You should totally. Are you? Are you? Is that like your type five? Thank you for hanging out with me. Nobody else wants to. <laughs> Maybe it's because every other word I say is snurks. <laughs> hey, do you know where I could get a prostitute? Because I will never be able to not pay for intercourse. So he gives this manuscript to C.S. Lewis. That was and a he- terrible British accent. <laughs> That's the whole thing. This guy just weirdly doesn't have one like everybody else does. They're just like, why do you talk like that? This is how assholes will talk in 30 years. By 1932, he gives this manuscript to C.S. Lewis, and he gives it also to a student of his named Elaine Griffiths. Um, Now, Elaine Griffiths is a huge part to play in all of it. You can thank her for all of this, essentially. Susan Dagnall, which is an employee of the publisher George Allen and Unwin, visits Griffiths at Oxford, who gets a copy of this manuscript and is very impressed by it and shows it to Stanley Unwin, who is one of the publishers um, that I just said. Unwin takes it to his 10-year-old son, Rainer, to give his review. Would you like to hear Rainer's review? I would love Love of to hear the Hobbit. This is the very first ever review for The Hobbit. He was written by a 10-year-old on the 30th of October, 1936. <clears throat> Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in his hobbit hole and never went for adventures. At can, last, Can you make it a little British? Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in his hobbit hole and never went for adventures. <laughs> At last, Gandalf the wizard and his dwarves persuaded him to go. He had a very exciting time fighting goblins and walks. At last, they get to the lonely mountain. Smog the dragon, who guards it, is killed, and after a terrific battle with the goblins, he returned home rich. This book will help with the help of maps. Does not need any illustrations. It is good and should appeal to all children between the ages of five and nine. That is the oldest ten-year-old boy I've ever. Heard. <laughs> also, I love that he says it will appeal to the ages of uh, between five and nine because he's ten yeah. and he has to like be the reviewer or whatever and like recommend it for younger yeah, people. Yeah, it's pretty good for like a simple-minded child, <laughs> right? Um, now this convinces Unwin to publish it. This glowing review from his nephew. It was published in September. September of 1937 with a print run of 1,500 copies, which sold out by December. 
because it got incredible reviews. Tolkien ends up designing the dust jacket and he did all the illustrations and maps. He wanted, I love, this would have been so cool. He wanted Thror's map to be glued in post binding of the book. Uh, so, so glued in after it was printed and bound. Um, and to have a uh, the moon letter Sirth, C-I-R-T-H, this moon letter on the reverse side of the sheet. So you had to hold it up to the sun to see it. So he wanted to have this like interactive book oh, yeah, yeah. for kids. That's like, a, for the time, that's incredible. Yeah, it would have been amazing, but it didn't happen. They, they said it would cost too much. Um, also, because it, it, it stayed in, in short supply for a very long time, which probably upped the clamor to get it and the excitement for it. the Tickle it. Me Elmo of its time. Exactly. But this was because of paper rationing due to World War II. And that actually kept it from getting to print. We will talk about his role in World War II next week, by the way. We'll get there. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Times, and I think this perfectly sums it all up. The truth is that in this book, a number of good things, never before united, have come together. A a fund of humor, an understanding of children, and a happy fusion of the scholars with the poet's grasp of mythology. I think that's the most important thing. A fusion of the scholars with the poet's grasp of mythology. This is what makes Tolkien. The professor has the air of inventing nothing. He has studied trolls and dragons at first hand and describes them with that fidelity that is worth oceans of glib, quote unquote, originality. <laughs> so in other words, like he makes it seem like actual history, like like it really happened, mm-hmm. like he really was around these fantastic creatures and, and told these is telling these tales himself. So um, George Allen and, and Unwin uh, request a sequel to The Hobbit. Tolkien warns them he writes quite slowly, very treebeardish. I write quite slowly, um, which is made more so by his academic position. He's still working at the school. He's still busting his ass. He's an Oxford fucking dumb. He's an Oxford ass motherfucking guy. Uh, he pitches the Cimmerillion and a book called Rover Random, which is about a dog who is turned into a toy by a wizard and must go to the moon. And he also uh, pitches an ex- uh, those are both rejected. Good. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, what is accepted is a comedic medieval fable titled Farmer Giles of Ham about a humble farmer and his encounter with a wily dragon. So again, he loves writing stories about humble people of the earth, salt of the earth types who get mixed up in these crazy scenarios. And as we'll definitely see for a second time after The Hobbit in The Lord of the Rings, it's pretty much almost The Hobbit's almost just this template. And he's like, read, you know, and then this is the like the big version. Um, in the end, the publishers say, man, we just want a new Hobbit. It sold so well. Just give us a new Hobbit. Well, he goes to work on that. And after several false starts, he finally finds what he's looking for. Originally, he planned to write a story in which Bilbo had used up all of his treasure and was looking for another adventure to gain more, um, which would have been such a basic-ass boring sequel, mm-hmm. right? However, he remembered The Ring from The Hobbit. So The Ring makes its first appearance in The Hobbit. We'll definitely get more into the creation of Gollum, the background of The Ring, all of these things next week. But yes, um, he, uh, you know, Bilbo classically steals the ring from the Gollum uh, during. um, He doesn't. Yeah, he steals. During chapter five, uh, I believe it's chapter five. Riddles in the dark. uh, One of the phenomenal. Read the Hobbit. It takes no. It takes two seconds to read the Hobbit. Just read it. It's if you don't have any interest in this, it's such a great gateway into it. It might actually get you to want to pick up the other books. It's a children's book. It's so easy to read. So, anyways, uh, he originally. 
he, he remembers this ring and its powers and thought that would be a better focus for the new work. Also, he was able to bring in elements from the Cimmerillion mythology. So now it's all coming together. So I love the fact, and I always wondered about this, that he had no intention of ever doing anything else with that ring in that first book until he started working on uh, oh, what yeah. would become Lord of the I Rings. I mean, you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I mean, sometimes you want to think like, man, he was he, what a mastermind. He like planted this seed in this children's book that, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't know how much or as how someone, little. No, I, I remember distinctly as a kid, uh, like being familiar with The Hobbit and then like finding out after the fact about Lord of the Rings and hearing like it's all about the Gollum ring. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I, it's a primal memory. But I th- that specific emotion of like, that, that that small the, the detail. fucking ring really I mean it makes I mean it, it is it is a almost a character in the Hobbit it plays seminal roles like from the moment it's discovered throughout the whole rest of the book it is what allows him to fucks with smog mm-hmm. you know I mean it really has a huge role to play um, but yes, I totally, it, it makes a lot of sense, but I also love that he organically just how he found like getting to know, this is why we do the show, right? <laughs> getting to learn how he actually came to all this shit has, has, has been so much fun for me this week. Like really, really has. So J.R.R. Tolkien. And be- of course the baboon spider, yes. which still lurks in the shadows yes. waiting for its moment to strike again. Exactly. And that baboon spider, spider, super horny, <laughs> weirdly horny right now. I don't know why. So Tolkien begins writing Lord of the Rings at age 45, and this is a journey that would last him 12 years of his life, on and off again, and last him through the Second World War. Uh, And that is where we're going to leave off, and we're going to pick back up next week with the writing of the entire thing. I don't need Jake, it's a lot, but we're going to get through it together, buddy. (laughs) And if you don't think we're going to talk about hippies next week, we're going to talk we're about We're going to talk hippies. about hippies and Hitler and uh, Gollum, and we're going to talk about fucking eagles, and we're going to talk about uh, all sorts of crazy bullshit. So you better try drugs for the first time, because if you don't, then you're dead to me. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, this uh, super fun episode. I'm I'm so excited to finally be doing this. It's definitely uh, one that I wanted to be doing for a very long time now. Also, so um, thanks again to our lovely patron who donated for this episode because um, I think it was in, it, it forced the issue. But whatever you say. do, do not try and find his fiance's books. <laughs> do not look for his fiance's books, okay? Because he's not. She doesn't want them to be read. <laughs> she doesn't want them to be read. People, I love how we may start a fight. With this episode that he paid for, as opposed to helping him at this point. But thank it's you again. It's very nice that he that he dedicated this. Yes, thank you again, I, Alan. I wish you both a wonderful anniversary. Alan and Bailey, let uh, may your love last for as long as Sam Wise and that um, fun horny broad that he ends up with in Hobbiton. What's her name? All the broads in Hobbiton are horny. They're awesome. Woo! I like them. I want to get it. Get Three it. feet of nasty lady. <laughs> All right, everyone, you can follow us. Uh, you can support us further, rather, on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. So hit us up if you'd like um, weekly bonus content. We put it out weekly. Get it's like it. a whole other show. It's like a whole other show. Um, and also, you can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdnator. So you can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And hey, don't forget Cartoon Hell on dropout.tv, as well as the comic series I write, Legend of Jared. Uh, both are very enjoyable. It's uh, dropout.tv. It's like Netflix, but cheaper and worse. And hey, always remember, always keep 
bruising. And never stop whizzing. We fucked it up, but it's too late. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.